Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. We continue our study in a series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. This is the eighth uh, in a series of, uh, of ten uh, sessions, and today we're considering Daniel. I've entitled our session today, Daniel, Praying the Promises of God. And of course, in order to be able to pray the promises of God, you have to know what the promises of God are. Um, and in addition to that, are, is, is the promise that you're praying, is it a conditional promise or is it an unconditional promise? Does God say, I'm going to do this? That's an unconditional promise. Or does God say, if you, then I? That would be a conditional promise. Is it a, a specific promise made to a specific individual or to a specific nation? Or is it just sort of a general thing? For example, uh, an example of general would be, um, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That Anyone. That applies to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says they will be saved. So today we're considering Daniel and talking about praying the promises of God. You should have two pieces of paper there before you. One is the uh, usual uh, notes and outline that you usually have in, in these sessions. And the other is a little uh, paper that I've entitled The Historical Setting of Daniel. I put that together just uh, just to sort of help you see how all of these things fit together, uh, how Daniel fits into the whole history of this particular time period. And also uh, I've included Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the, the ministry of those two prophets, so that you can see how they how the three of them sort of overlap. In fact, I could have included several others, uh, for example, Habakkuk. But uh, that did not seem uh, germane to what we were going to be discussing. By way of review, remember that we've already seen that, uh, that the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes referred to as Samaria, had fallen to Assyria uh, in 722 B.C. And I put a, a passage there in your notes that bears that out from 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. The king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it, and at the end of three years he took it. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And of course the issue was their disobedience, uh, the issue for Israel was their disobedience to the Lord. They had gotten into all kinds of idolatry, there was a lot of violence, uh, they were not living righteous lives. They were not trusting in, in the Lord. Years later, uh, between 605 and 586 B.C., there were three invasions by the Babylonians in the, uh, in the kingdom of Judah. And the fall of Babylon finally came, the, the ultimate fall, in 586 B.C. During that 136 years between the, the fall of Samaria, the fall of Israel, and the fall of Judah, there were nine kings who reigned. Seven of them were very uh, wicked, ungodly men. There were two who were said to be godly, and one of them we talked about in our last session, that was Hezekiah. He was a reformer. And there was another one who came along a little bit later, and that was Josiah. Uh, he also was a reformer. As I mentioned, there were three invasions uh, by Babylon in 605, and you can sort of refer to that little chart uh, as we're talking about this, if, if, you, if you like. In 605 was the first invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, and that was the time at which Daniel and his three friends and, and, and a number of other people were deported to Babylon. And then several years later, in 597 B.C., there was another invasion by uh, the Babylonians. And it, it was at that time that Ezekiel was deported. And then finally, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came back, and this time he just laid the city waste, uh, destroyed the city and the temple. Everything was razed. There had been multiple warnings of judgment coming. In fact, one of them we talked about when we uh, when we looked at 
uh, in our study of uh, Hezekiah, and I put uh, a reference in your notes there in 701 B.C., uh, and this is the passage from Isaiah chapter 39. Notice God uh, speaks to Hezekiah through Isaiah and says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And remember, at this time in in 701, the Assyrians were still the dominant world power uh, in in that particular area. Uh, Babylon was just, was on the rise, but certainly it uh, it it had not come to the forefront, and it had not surpassed Assyria at this point. And yet God says. Uh, to Hezekiah through Isaiah that Babylon is going to come. And, it, and of course it did uh, a number of years later. And then there's the passage from uh, Habakkuk there that took place around 609 B.C. when Habakkuk was, was disturbed. Habakkuk looked around him and he saw all of the injustice that was going on in the land. The, the people who were in charge were not doing what they were supposed to. Injustice was rampant. Idolatry also was rampant. And it just seemed like uh, you know the, the good guys were getting shafted and the bad guys were getting ahead. And he went to God and he said, it just seems to me like, God, that you're just not doing anything. And the Lord said, oh yeah, I'm doing something. And here God speaks to Habakkuk about what he's doing. And the whole issue that uh, uh, Habakkuk has raised is that of injustice. And God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. Now this was just a few years, this was around 609 and about uh, four years later, Nebuchadnezzar would, uh, would, would come down and, uh, and begin to do just this very thing. And then of course there's God's word to Judah, to the whole nation of Judah through the prophet Jeremiah. And this took place around the time of the first invasion, just, uh, well, let's just read it, from Jeremiah 25 verses 8 and following. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that interesting? Now, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is an unbeliever, and yet what does God refer to him as? He calls him my servant. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was doing God's work. He was the one who was bringing judgment. God had said, I'm going to bring judgment on you for your wickedness, for your injustice. And God uses Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument to do that. And in using him as his instrument, he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant. He says, uh, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Now, again, if you look at if you look at that chart, you'll notice that uh, again Daniel is uh, is deported around six o five. And it was in 536, I'm sorry, 539, I'm getting ahead of myself, when Babylon ultimately was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, the next great empire to follow. And immediately upon that uh, conquest by the Medes and the Persians, uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, decreed that the land of Judah should be repatriated. And within a year or so, uh, there were a little less than 50,000 people under the leadership of Zerubbabel who went back to that land. And just a couple of years later, in 536, uh, temple reconstruction uh, began. Now, there was a delay in it, and uh, it wasn't finished until a number of years later. But uh, notice from 605 to 536 is roughly 70 years. And what did God say? He said it's going to be 70 years. In fact, if you look also, uh, notice from 586 when the temple and the Jerusalem itself was destroyed in the, at the time of the third invasion, and you look when the temple was eventually completed after the repatriation of the land, the temple was completed and was dedicated. That was in 516. Well, what's the difference between 
uh, the years 586 and 516. Yeah, that's right. It's 70 years. See, God says what He means, and He means what He says. He said, you're going into exile for 70 years. And that's exactly what they did. Now, God went on to say, then I'm going to bring you back to the land. But let's, uh, let's kind of get a, a feel for uh, the background of, uh, of what Daniel's been going through all of, uh, all of this time. It says, uh, and let's, let's begin by looking at uh, Daniel chapter 1. This is the 605 B.C. It's the time of the first invasion. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar. When you read Shinar, just think Babylon. To the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, notice what, what he's doing. He, at, this, uh, at this first invasion, he kind of sacks the temple. Not completely, but he takes a lot of stuff out of the temple and takes it to the house of his God back in Babylon. And essentially, he was saying, you know, your God can't defend you. Now, even though the Lord refers to Nebuchadnezzar, as my servant. Nebuchadnezzar at this point did not realize that in doing what he was doing that he was indeed serving the, uh, the only true God. Verse 3 says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Notice you want good-looking kids who are smart. They have an aptitude to learn. And um, and the idea is he's just competent to stand in the king's palace. In other words, we're going to put these folks in university, and as it turned out, they were going to do it for th- teach them for three years. And at the end of that time, they were going to enter into public service. That is, they were going to be serving the king of Babylon in whatever capacity that, uh, that he deemed appropriate. Also, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they were going to learn all these uh, uh, traditions and cultural things. They were, going to, they were going to learn to dress differently. They were going to learn to speak a different language. They were going to learn all about the Babylonian gods. They were going to learn things about astrology, stuff that just had never crossed their mind. Now, among these youths who were taken off, of course, were Daniel and, uh, and his three friends. It goes, on to, it goes on to say in verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So again, Daniel faces a test right away. Now think about it. If you, as best we can tell, and scholars seem to pretty much agree on this, that Daniel and his friends were probably between somewhere around 14 to 17 years old when they were taken away. And uh, Daniel is going gonna, is gonna to be gone for the full 70 years. So by the time this is all over, he's going to be in his mid-80s. They were taken away. The first thing they did was to make eunuchs out of them. Remember, we read that back in, uh, back in the passage from Isaiah. Uh, that would certainly help them to keep their minds on their studies. Then they had a special diet for them. Now, Daniel's got a problem now because he wants to keep kosher. Now, some of us would say, well, look, I'll tell you, if God hauled me off somewhere a long, long way from home and I was going to never get to see home again and the first thing that happened to me was they you know, did to me what, uh, what we'd done to the family dog, uh, my attitude would be, well, if God can't do any better than this, I'm just going to take care of number one and live the best I can. That was not Daniel's attitude at all because what Daniel did, he said, look, I, you know, I... I, my friends and I just can't eat this kind of food. So what he did was he, he approached the person who was in charge and he said, look, test us for the next 10 days. Put us on veggies and water and uh, let these other folks eat the king's special diet. And at the end of 10 days, you just compare, compare us with them. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends look better than the, than the folks on the king's special diet. And so the uh, person who was in charge of Daniel and this, this group of exiles said, okay, you can continue on that diet. So Daniel did not uh, defile himself by eating the wrong kinds of food. It says uh, among these, it, it gives us the names of them, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. 
And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. The, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Daniel is a Hebrew name, obviously. Belteshazzar is a Babylonian or Chaldean name. And it means Bel protect the king. Bel was one of their chief chief deities there in uh, in Babylon. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. And of course, what he was doing was... in the pro- there's a re-socialization process that's going on, obviously. Uh, culture, traditions, dress, language, and now new names so that when we call one another, when we talk to one another, I don't refer to you as Daniel, or uh, which, which reminds me that God is my judge, but instead I refer to you by a Babylonian name. So there's a whole re-socialization process going on here. And at the end of that chapter, it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And of course, that was in 539 when the Medes and the Persian Empire defeated the uh, and conquered the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel is there a, a minimum of uh, 66, 67 years and certainly even longer than that because we know that he was still working during the early years of, uh, of that uh, Persian administration. Now, in, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel is promoted to chief administrator. What had happened was the king had had a really weird dream about a multi-metallic statue and, uh, he, and apparently King Nebuchadnezzar must have been a little paranoid or something. But anyway, he was beginning to suspect that his, uh, his advisors weren't perhaps as sharp as they needed to be. So he told him, he said, look, he said, uh, I need for you to explain to me what this dream means that I had. And they said, well, sure, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, what you're going to do is you're going to tell me what the dream was and then tell me what it means. And he said, well, hey, nobody can do that. And so King Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if you can't do it, I'm going to get me a new set of advisors. So the word went out to kill all the wise men. And that included the ones who were in university at the time, Daniel and his friends. And as a result of that, when the, when the word got to Daniel, he said he went to his, the person in charge of him and he said, look, uh, if you'll just give us a little bit of time, we'll provide what the king wants. And to make a long story short, he did. Uh, he told the king uh, what, his, the, what his dream consisted of and also explained what it meant uh, to the king. And uh, as a result of that, uh, Daniel and his, free, his three friends were promoted and Daniel became the chief administrator. In Daniel chapter 4, you say, well, where's Daniel chapter 3? Well, in Daniel 3, Daniel does not appear. That's the story of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the furnace of fire. Uh, maybe Daniel was on vacation or uh, out doing some sort of uh, work somewhere. But anyway, in Daniel chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. It was a dream about a huge tree that was chopped down by some, some being that came out of the heavens. And it upset him, and one of the things that Daniel did was he explained the dream to him and then called the king to repentance. It's interesting to see the kind of relationship that Daniel seemed to develop with, uh, with not only Nebuchadnezzar, because it, uh, it was not only a servant-to-master relationship, but it also there seemed to be uh, an openness that Daniel had with these uh, chiefs of state in which he could freely express himself and he could uh, and in which they seem to appreciate that and that it's almost like a friendship that you see sometimes but anyway so daniel admonishes the king and eventually uh, in daniel chapter 4 nebuchadnezzar it appears became a believer and daniel 5 is the story of belshazzar now that's that's different from daniel's name daniel's he uh babylonian name is belteshazzar and Belshazzar is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel chapter 5 is famous for the handwriting on the wall. And uh, apparently uh, what had happened was at, this, at the time of Daniel chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians were uh, really beginning to put pressure on the Babylonians. In fact, at, at that particular time, they had, the, uh, they had the city of Babylon surrounded. And uh, what uh, Belshazzar was doing, well, along with his friends and uh, all the nobility and the big wigs inside, were, they decided to get the uh, stuff that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the, the temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem, and they started drinking wine and toasting these false gods with it. 
and then all of a sudden this hand just appears out of nowhere. And I'm sure that, you know, because they didn't have electric lights in those days, they burned oil lamps. There's probably a lot of lamp black that sort of collects around the ceiling, and then all of a sudden there's this hand that appears, and it starts writing on the wall. Belshazzar really got upset, said his knees even knocked, and nobody could tell him what it meant. So uh, the queen mother said, you know, Back in the old days of your grandpa, there, there was a guy, there was a, an advisor named Belteshazzar, and uh, he, he really seemed to know his stuff. So they called in Daniel, and Daniel translated what it, what it meant. Mene, mene, tekeo, you far seen. Uh, you've been uh, weighed in the balances, Belshazzar, and have found wanting, and now your kingdom is, uh, is taken away from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. While all this was going on inside, what, what was going on outside was well, the Medes and the Persians had dug a canal and had diverted the Euphrates River that ran through the middle of the city of Babylon. And when that water went into that canal, of course, the, the water level dropped and the uh, Medes and the Persians just simply went in under the gate. Uh, in that, through that riverbed and conquered the city. So that's what happened in, Jan, uh, in chapter 5. Uh, Daniel was given a meaningless promotion. It, it was kind of like shifting the chairs around on the Titanic because within a matter of hours the city had, uh, had fallen. Daniel chapter 6 is about, uh, it takes place in the court of the Persians. Looking again in your notes, you see, uh, and of course the date here is 539, because that's when that conquest took place. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. He was really doing his job great. Now remember, this is, the, this is a long time after Daniel has gone into exile. So Daniel now is in his, uh, at least in his early 80s, but he's still doing a great job. And it says, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And remember that that really stirred up the jealousy among the Persians, and that's where this whole thing about uh, Daniel wound up in the lion's den. And Darius was really upset about that because he realized that he'd been set up by these other folks, <clears throat> and uh, they didn't they didn't play any music that night. That Daniel was in the lion's den, no music. Uh, no special food or anything, and uh, apparently Darius the king was really upset that he had been duped because um, he really seemed to have a, a great relationship uh, with, with Daniel. Verse 28 says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, who was Mede, and the reign of Cyrus, who was the Persian. Okay, that brings us now, and incidentally, and I put this in your notes, what we see in Daniel chapter 6 is that Daniel was faithful uh, to God, but he was also faithful to his government. But it was he was faithful in that order. He was faithful first to God, and then he did the right thing as far as his uh, his work was concerned. Now this is where we've been headed this whole time. So let's look at Daniel chapter nine, and again this takes in place in 539 B.C. because this is the prayer of Daniel. It says in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus by descendant of Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. When you read the word Chaldeans, just think Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And notice, notice what's going on. Besides taking care of the affairs of state, Daniel has been doing something else. What's that? He's been reading the writings of Jeremiah. Now, in reading the writings of Jeremiah, what has he discovered? He's discovered that the, the very thing that we read earlier uh, in Jeremiah 25, but also in Jeremiah chapter 29, that this period of exile was going to last for 70 years, the Babylonian exile, and then at the end of 70 years, God was going to bring these folks back to their, uh, back to their land. In fact, look just above that, uh, about the middle of the page, to what Jeremiah had written back in just a few years earlier, the time of the second invasion. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Daniel has been reading the writings of Jeremiah. And he has uh, looked at his calendar and he says, Good grief, it's about time that the 70 years are up. So notice, instead of uh, just crossing his arm, folding his arms and saying, Well, this ought to be interesting to watch and see how God does this, because apparently God, God promised it after the 70 years that he would, uh, he'd, bring his, he'd repatriate the land, he'd bring the people back. But instead of doing that, he began to pray. Now why would he pray? Well, what did we just read in Jeremiah 29? God says in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. What are the plans? I'm going to bring you back to the land. But he says in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you back. But you're going to pray and ask me to bring you back first. That's what Daniel's going to do. Verse 3 of Daniel 9 says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now notice, this uh, Daniel had a tip-top job. He was chief administrator, and he got along well with the folks at the top. It was the middle management that really you know, gave him a hard time. It was always trying to get his job from him. But he's been deliberating in the Word. He's discovered the will of God. What is the will of God? That they go into exile when the 70 years are up, that they go back. That, there is no question. And in fact, as we read through Daniel 9 and read through this prayer, you'll discover Daniel never uses the term, Your will be done, Lord. Why? Because he knew what God's will was. He had been reading it in Jeremiah's writings that God was going to bring these people back. But notice how Daniel identifies with his people. Although he's, he's the one who serves kings, and he's the one who hangs around in these exclusive kind of places, yet Daniel identifies with the, with the people of God. And he puts, he fasts, and he puts on sackcloth, he covers himself with ashes, and he begins to plead for mercy. Notice, he doesn't plead for justice. Oh Lord, we, we've been kind of screwed over for the last 70 years, and now it's time for payback. You won't find that in his prayer. It's not about, Lord, give us justice. No, the last thing we want is justice. Because they've been getting justice for 70 years. Grace means getting something that you don't deserve. What is it that Daniel's asking for? He's asking for mercy. What is mercy? It's not getting something that you do deserve. They deserved what they were getting. But it was time for God that God had promised He was going to bring them back. And so Daniel begins to pray, Oh God, have mercy on us. Verse 4, I pray to, and, and notice as we read through this, the pronouns, um, instead of uh, they and them, it's, al- it's almost exclusively, not quite, but almost exclusively we and us, and uh, just notice the pronouns. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Notice how his prayer begins. Now, he's seeking God, just as Jeremiah, had, uh, God had said through the prophet Jeremiah. But notice how his prayer begins. It begins with hallowing God's name. Now see again, this goes back to our first session when we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Well, when you pray, pray pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, and then what's the next? That's it. Hallowed be thy name. That is, uh, your name is to be set apart. You are the awesome God. And that's what we see Daniel doing in there. And then he continues in verse 5, He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Well, now, Daniel, 
you've been doing the right thing. You wouldn't even break kosher. He's been he's identifying with his uh, with the folks of uh, of Judah. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes. That's the nobility, and our fathers. That would be the elders, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Notice what he's saying here, in, in, uh, particularly in verse 7. He's saying, God, you are right in what you're doing. Notice, he doesn't say, you know, Lord, it seems like you kind of overdone it a little bit. Yeah, we, you know, we were wrong, but don't you think you carried this thing a little bit too far? Seventy years is a long time. No, he says, oh Lord, to you belongs righteousness. What you've done is right. What we have is open shame because what we've done is wrong. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Notice, those are not things that we can insist that God give us. Those are things that God can choose to give us. He can choose to forgive us. He can choose to be merciful to us. God is merciful. But God doesn't have to do that because God is holy and righteous. And what God does owe us is justice. That's what He owes us. And that's what Christ received in our stead was the justice of God when God poured out His wrath on Christ Jesus on the cross for my sins and your sins. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice. Notice he says, there is universal culpability. We are all guilty of all of this. You're right. Isn't it interesting that when he reads Jeremiah, the result of reading Jeremiah is a confession of sin. As we're going to see in just a moment, he's going to quote from, the, uh, from Moses' writings twice. And each time he quotes from Moses' writings, it leads to more confession of sin. That's what, that's what reading the Scriptures should do for us. It, we should be convicted of our sin and, and realize, you know, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, you know, the, the, the obvious sins uh, are just that. And when we're young with the Lord, we think we're making progress because we, we give up certain habits or we stop doing this. But then... The longer we walk with the Lord, we realize that there are motivations deep, deep down inside of us that we never even knew were there. Those, those subtle kinds of things, and yet God continues to put His finger on those things to mold us and shape us and make us in more and more into the image of His Son. He goes on to say there in the middle of verse 11, And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Notice, didn't say he allowed a great calamity to come. He brought the calamity on us. For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Notice in the left-hand column of your notes, so about a third of the way down, there's a passage in that little mice type there from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now remember, when, when Moses wrote this, this is around 1400 B.C. So this is more than 800 years before what we're talking about here uh, with, with Daniel. So now we discover something else. Daniel's been taking care of affairs of state, as he should. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah, but he's also been reading something else. He's been reading the Torah. He's been reading the, the first uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. See, one of the great things about the position that he was in is he would have access to all kinds of papers that had been gathered and uh, during the course of conquest by the Assyrians 
papers would have been gathered. Uh, and then when the Babylonians conquered, then those papers would have been added, more papers would be added to it. And then when the Medes and the Persians came in, there would be even more papers. So you've got this huge library of stuff that Moses could be, I'm sorry, that uh, Daniel could be reading. And included in that is the writings of Jeremiah, the writings of, uh, of Moses. And of course, he wants to read those because they pertain to his nation. They pertain to the God that he loves. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13 says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous. Now again, he's saying the Lord is right in what he's done. We were wrong. The Lord is right. The Lord hasn't overreacted. In fact, the Lord's done exactly what he said he was going to do. And now let me read that passage uh, you just follow along from Deuteronomy 28, the one I was referring to just a minute ago. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Again, God says what He means, and He means what He says. All right, back to Daniel chapter 9. He says, uh, let's see, verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Notice again, there's a contrast here. Lord, You're the one with the mighty hand. You're the one who've been gracious and merciful to us. You're the one who brought us out of the Egyptian captivity. You are the one who have been kind to us. You're the one who've made a name for Yourself. Your reputation, Lord, has just been glorious among the nations. We're the ones who've sinned. What you've done is exactly right, Lord. It's exactly what we deserve. And now we see the, the plea for God's mercy beginning in verse 16. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the inequities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Let, uh, <clears throat> when he says, let your anger and your wrath turn away. This is such a great picture later of, uh, of what Jesus would do at the cross as He hung suspended on the cross and all of the sins of all of God's people were placed upon Jesus. And what does God do? He pours out His wrath on His own Son because His Son has become the sin offering. The Son was made sin. Oh, what is it? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Think, think about it. Here's the first person of the Godhead, the Father, and the second person of the Godhead, uh, the Son, who have been for all eternity face-to-face -face in perfect fellowship. And in those moments, those awful, awful, awful moments on the cross, when Jesus became the sin offering, the Father turns away and the Son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he wasn't asking a question. He was quoting from Psalm 22. But that fellowship was broken because God was not, could not look upon that sin turned away, separated from the Son. Why? So that you and I, who deserve that separation because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God, but so that God would never, ever, ever separate Himself from us. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. Oh, what a great picture. And he's praying, O oh God, turn away your wrath. Now therefore, O Lord, O our God, verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. 
And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Again, the picture of God turning His face, that, that, that the idea, it's, it's as if God has turned His back. He's turned away. O God, turn now and let your face shine upon us. Remember the benediction that the preacher uses sometime about, about uh, the, the, the Lord shining the light of His face upon you? That's, uh, it's, it's sort of that idea. Oh, how beautiful. And notice, notice he doesn't say, and do this, uh, be merciful for our sake. He says, no, be merciful for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon us, to shine upon your sanctuary and ultimately upon us. And the idea is that God is, he's saying, God, vindicate your reputation. Remember, Jerusalem is in shambles. It 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 just been burned to the ground along with the temple and just just destroyed. And in that day, the condition of the temple and the condition of the nation was thought to reflect on how powerful your God was. And He's saying, look, uh, people look and see your temple destroyed, and they see the city where your temple is located destroyed. Lord, vindicate your your reputation in all of this. You know, it's such a such a such a great picture here. It reminds me of uh, of that old hymn by Horatio Spafford. It is well with my soul uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. But I think the one that the the verse that really stands out for me and it ties in with this is verse uh, stanza three when he says, "My my sin." And then there's a pause. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's what Daniel's asking for. Oh God, turn your face toward us again. Vindicate your reputation. He says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Notice, notice. It's not because, well, you know, we've been shafted all these years and it's about time things turned around for us. We've done pretty well under, you know, under the shafting. No, none of that. He says, No. What you were right in what you did, Lord. You you were perfectly righteous, and the reason this has happened is because of our sinfulness. And now, Lord, what I am pleading for you to do is to be merciful. Be merciful to us because you are a God of great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Not notice, not again, not for our sake, but for your sake. Vindicate your reputation. Be merciful for your own sake sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God, your reputation is at stake. And what does God do? He answers prayer. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, the man Gabriel. Now Gabriel is an, is an angel, I think an archangel, and apparently came in the form of a, a human being whom I had seen in the vision at the first. This is a a previous vision that uh, Daniel had had. He came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. That would have been sometime between uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and, and sundown. And says, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come now, come out to give you insight and understanding. And what follows is a glorious prophecy regarding the uh, Messiah's coming. But what else stems from this is uh, if you look again, you look back at your chart, and Daniel is praying this, and this is in 539 when he when he prays this. Babylon has just been conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Persian pronounces a decree within that year to repatriate the land, and the repatriation begins the very next year in 538. And a couple of years later, folks are arriving, and temple construction. Uh, begins again. There's a dis discontinuation because the Samaritans who were who had invaded that area tried all kinds of political shenanigans to stop things, and people got interested in doing their own stuff. If if you're interested in that, you can read the book of Haggai and the book of Zech <coughs> Zechariah because they are they are contemporary to uh, to to that particular time. But then the con uh, temple construction resumed, and in 516 it was completed. And 
when the temple was dedicated and God fulfilled His promise just exactly as He said that He would. So, as we look at the conclusion and we begin to draw uh, application from all of this, what do we see? We see that Daniel 9 illustrates the relationship between God's sovereignty and the believer's responsibility. See, God decrees the end, that is, what's going to happen, the results, the the purpose, the events that are going to take place. But He also decrees the means that bring things to those ends. For example, and I put three of them in your notes there, uh, the sale of Joseph into slavery by his older brothers the ten older brothers. Now, God didn't tell those ten older brothers, y'all need to go sell you uh, Joseph in slavery. He didn't say that. didn't tell them that at all. They were jealous because of uh, Dad's affection for Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. During that time that Joseph was in slavery, after 13 years, he, uh, through an interesting chain of events, he's promoted and becomes chief operations officer or governor over all of Egypt. Nine years after that, the famine, the second year of famine has taken place and has moved up from Egypt into the land of Canaan, and those ten older brothers come south to buy grain from Egypt because they've heard that there's food down there. Of course, Joseph's been storing it up during those seven real prosperous years. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And Joseph accuses them of being spies and says, the only way you're going to prove to me that you're not spies is that that younger brother you were telling me about, you're going to have to bring him down here to prove it to me. Now, of course, Joseph knew they weren't spies, but what he was doing was he wanted to be sure that, that young Benjamin had not been treated by those brothers or the same way that he had been treated some uh, 22 years earlier. So when they went back and they eventually brought their brother down there, and of course, before it's all over, there's a tremendous reuniting and... Uh, after Dad eventually, Jacob eventually dies in Egypt where the whole family's moved down there. Uh, the brothers, those ten older brothers, get all excited again. and say, well, you know, I'll bet you the only reason Joseph's been good to us is because Dad was down here. And now that Dad's dead, the boy is going to hit the fan. And in Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, when you did that, you meant evil against me. But then the latter part of the verse says, but God meant it for good. See, God had ordained the end, and that was the saving of Jacob and his whole family. But what was the means to doing that? The means to doing that was getting Joseph down into Egypt. And how did God do that? He used the evil act of those ten older brothers to accomplish His purposes. Notice you see the same thing in the crucifixion of Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Peter is uh, praying at this point, and he says this. He says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, in this case it would be the Romans, and the people of Israel in this city, that's Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did. Who the they? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, the people of Israel. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Crucifixion wasn't an accident. It was planned. And God didn't tell Herod, you need to do this, and tell Pontius Pilate, you need to do this. God just orchestrated things in such a way and just used even the evil of these people and the evil intentions in order to bring about the crucifixion so that Jesus would die for the sins of His people and ultimately be resurrected from the dead. You see the same thing with salvation. Notice the passage there from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is from the New American Standard Version. Paul writes, uh, Paul wrote, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. So he's writing to yeah, that he's writing to Christians. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. That obviously that's Christians. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Why were you saved? Because God chose you from the beginning. Your names were written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world, the Scriptures say. Now, how did God... That's the end. The end is, is that we're to be saved. But how does God accomplish that? What means does He use? It says, alright, let's keep reading. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 
That's the end. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit, that's the working of the Spirit in our lives, regenerating us, granting us faith and repentance, bringing our dead souls to life, and faith in the truth. Now, how do we get the truth? We'll just keep reading. It was for this He called you, how? Through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were chosen from the beginning for salvation. How does God accomplish that? That's the end. How does God accomplish that? What's the means? The means is the working of the Holy Spirit as He regenerates us, as He convicts us of our sin, as He grants us faith and repentance, brings our dead souls to life. We're exposed to the Gospel, and all of a sudden we see ourselves for the sinners that we truly are. We see Christ Jesus as the only legitimate, viable solution to our sin problem. And the Spirit of God grants, has granted us life, and we embrace that and we say, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. I believe that Jesus died for me. And what happens? God does have mercy on us. He saves us. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God has determined prayer as a means that He uses to accomplish His ends. And we see that certainly in this, in this whole thing with, uh, with Daniel. God had decreed that Judah would remain in exile for 70 years. God promised at the end of that specified time He'd bring them back to the land. And God used His Word through the prophet Jeremiah to move His prophet Daniel to pray for their return. And then God fulfilled His promise when Zerubbabel led almost 50,000 people back to the land. And then finally... Praying about God's promises requires effort on our part. First of all, we need to know what the promises of God are. How, how do we do that? Well, we saturate ourselves with God's Word. We listen to the preacher. We hear, we hear the Word. We read the Word. We study the Word. We memorize the Word. We meditate on the Word. All of those things are important. Listen, it's been said, uh, that in a, and research has been done on this, that in after a 24-hour period, we remember 5% of what we've heard. We remember 15% of what we've read. We remember 35% of what we've studied. We remember, obviously, 100% of what we memorized. And it's important in all of those things to meditate on each one of those things. Meditate on what we've heard the preacher say. Meditate on what we've been reading in our quiet time. Meditate on what we've been studying in, in, in Bible study. Meditate on the things that we're memorizing that, that mean so much to us. Ask ourselves, are these, uh, is there a promise here? Is this promise conditional? Is there something I'm supposed to do before God does something? Or is it an unconditional? Does it apply specifically to someone? For example, in our study last week uh, on Hezekiah, one of the things that we didn't look at was in that same time frame, Hezekiah had become very ill and he, in fact, he had turned his face toward the wall and was ready to die. And God told him, he said, Hezekiah, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And, and God did. Now, can we take that promise and say, well, I read in the Bible where it said God added 15 years to his life. So I believe God's going to add, I'm going to claim that promise that God's going to add 15 years to my life. Well, God didn't promise that to us. He promised that to Hezekiah. So we need to be careful about things like that. And remember this, praying God's promises is neither a matter of reminding God. God doesn't have to be reminded. God never forgets anything. Nor cajoling God into action. God is not reluctant to fulfill His promises. He's not forgotten His promises. Praying the promises of God means that you and I identify ourselves with His plans. Not, here are my plans, Lord. How about blessing them? But it's, Lord, what, what is your will? What are your plans? And I want to fit in to your plans. May the Lord help us as we seek to pray according to the will of God. Praise be to God. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.